that we could play that song for the whole world. Uh, you know, we, we planned things months ago. We planned today. And we thought, you know, this is a great song to follow up for me to come in and share the word, preparing your hearts. And I sat there listening to that song and thinking about my message and thinking about what our world has experienced the last two days or last two weeks. And I just think, they could all just hear that. That was the only message we could give them was that song. Would it, would it be enough? We drove down to Florida, and we're driving down to Florida, and it's funny, I'm preaching on mercy and grace, and we talk about a road trip, because everybody knows how driving goes. <laughs> but we're driving, and at some point you actually drive far enough away from Huntsville that you fall out of the umbrella of Way FM, and I was lost for a moment. And so we hit the scan button, and a country music station comes on, and I like both kinds of music, country and western, so it's okay. Uh, I actually like all, I like all music, but we're driving and we're listening to the music. We're just background noise to keep me awake, so the hum of the tires and all that, and we're driving, and this song comes on. And the song, and I'm not here to to really get into the, to this song, but the title of the song was called Noise. It's a country song. It's, it's a Kenny Chesney song, and the, the, the focal point of the song is everybody's trying to be heard, trying to, to be heard above the noise. And I thought, you know, how, how true is that? We're living in a time of noise. Everybody wants to be heard. My cause is more important than your cause. And, I, and I'm thinking about noise. I'm thinking about mercy and grace. And, and by the way, this word on the wall back here is the Greek word for grace. If you're visiting with us and you, and you missed the introduction on that, that's what that word means. It means grace. And I'm thinking about how we're living in this time of noise, how everybody wants to be heard. And so I thought, you know, I'm on vacation. And I started Googling um, signs. But not just any signs. I started to Google search protest signs. Who, I wonder who really wanted to be heard. And so, in no particular order, I came up with a top ten list of the protest signs that I discovered. And I want to share them with you. Here's the first one. This one, we have seen a lot in, in our society. Black Lives Matter. It has become a movement. The next sign that I found was queer and trans and Black Lives Matter. The next sign that I saw said Life Matters, which was followed with another sign. Uh, the person next to the person holding the Life Matters sign was someone who was holding a sign that said All Lives Matter, born and unborn. 
And then next to that person was someone holding another sign that said, I regret my abortion, hashtag aborted lives matter. And I'm looking through these and I'm thinking, Kitty Chesney's got something there. We're just living, trying to be heard above the rest of the noise. I found another sign. It said, blue lives matter. In reference to our police officers. Then there was another sign. And I saw the sign and I thought, well, why did they post this? And I said, military lives matter, which I agree of. I agree 100% that our military lives matter. And I thought, why is that? And so I started looking at it. And this sign was actually held in, in protest or in, in trying to get recognition um, during uh, some of the, the things that were happening with Benghazi. And people were saying, our military lives matter. And then again, there was someone holding similar signs about military lives matter uh, outside of some veterans' hospitals with how our veterans are being treated. And, and I agree, military lives matter. Another sign that, that came up was LGBTQ lives matter. My favorite sign that came up was this next one. Not really. Killer whales lives matter. We speak for the animals. I called that person. I said, shut up and sit down. I didn't. I'm kidding because animals matter, but they're still just animals. They're, it's okay, all right? We can't raise awareness about things if we can't study them. If we can't, it's, it's a whole different sermon. But the fact that they had signs that said, we speak for the animals like they were uh, Dr. Doolittle or something. It just, it bothered me. Nobody had a sign. Here, I guess this is what bothered me about the killer whales, lives matter. Nobody had a sign that said, like, dolphins' lives matter or sea otters' lives matter. Some of you, that's your spirit animal is a dolphin. Nobody, nobody had a sign that said, the other fish at SeaWorld matter or the, you know, the manta ray's life matters. They only cared about the killer whale, and I just bothered me for some reason. Maybe I have issues. But then my, my real favorite sign was this next one. This is the last sign that, that came up. Let's see if that'll stand right there. All right, I'll try not to mess with that too much. And it said this. This guy, all these signs, all this noise, all these different protests and, and all these different people claiming what they felt mattered the most. And there was this one guy. I should have brought the picture, but he was just he's skinny and scrawny, uh, not well built and muscular like myself. And he's holding up this sign. He's wearing a pair of ratty shorts and a tank top and just kind of a sun hat. And it just says, I love humanity. Let's figure this out. And I thought, that's, that's it. That's, he doesn't even know it, but he's offering grace and mercy to all the people around him who are, who are saying that, that their sign mattered more than his. And he just said, I love humanity. I don't even know you, but I love you. Let's figure this out. Let's work through it. Because the reality is every life matters. And, and this is uncomfortable stuff, church. I'm not going to lie. But it's not in my job description to stay silent so that we can stay comfortable. So I have to talk about it. And we're going to look at what God's Word says about it. And like I said, we're living in a time of noise. And the louder people get, the more they holler, the more they scream, the more they protest. You know what I hear? Continually. For the last few weeks I've been hearing... This need for mercy and grace. But that brings us to our problem and focal point for today. Mercy and grace are hard. Why? 
Why are mercy and grace so hard? Well, that's why this series is called The Secrets of Mercy and Grace. But that's the secret. We forget. The thing we forget about mercy and grace is that when you get to the core of what mercy and grace really are, they're not even ours to give. You see, when, when our God is with us, when we are living our lives as a reflection of Him, when we're living our lives to honor Him, we can freely give mercy and freely give grace to others. Let me show you what I mean. I found some other signs too. These aren't so much like protest signs as they are, well, just encouragement from God's Word for a time like this. Isaiah 41.10, Isaiah tells us, he says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you believe that? Do you really believe what Isaiah said there? Yes, sir. Then let go of mercy and grace and stop holding on to it like it's yours to give. Romans 8, 35-39 says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I wanted to bring a sword out just because it says sword and I really wanted to drive that point home. No. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe what I just read to you? Then let go of mercy and grace and stop holding on to it like it's yours to give. Will you pray with me? Father God, we come here this morning and we're looking at mercy and grace. And we we look at our world and we see the hurt. We see the anguish. We see the the struggle to be heard above the noise. And we see the reality that our world needs mercy and grace, your mercy and grace now more than probably ever. I pray, Lord, as we look at your word, to open our minds, help us to understand what you would have us do in these current situations. Help us to be a better, stronger reflection of you in our community and in our world. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to make a really bold statement right now, and some of you may not like hearing this, but that's okay. I want you to think about this statement as we look into mercy and grace, and here it is. You know yourself better than I know you. We all know ourselves. We know our strengths. We know our weaknesses. We know what we're good at. We know what we're not good at. I want to challenge you with this thought. If you can't seem to reflect mercy and grace to others, then I want to challenge you to re-examine your relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are thinking, well, you don't know me that well, and you're right. But I think that if we are striving as individuals to truly reflect and honor God in our life, 
reflecting mercy and grace to others would be an example, would be the fruit of that relationship. And so if you find it hard to release mercy and grace, I want to challenge you to begin re-examining your relationship with Jesus. This morning, as we look at why mercy and grace are so hard, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to go ahead and turn there. And as you do, I want to share with you a story that I think is probably one of the best examples of grace and mercy uh, that I know. It's from the Bible, and it comes. it's about King David. King David becomes king over all of Israel. And you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, by the way. He, he becomes king over all of Israel. And one of the things he does as king is he asks about any of Jonathan's family. Now, for those of you who may not know, Jonathan was his, like his best friend. But really, Jonathan should have been the king, the way that kingships are set up. He should have been the king, but he wasn't. And Jonathan had been killed. And David knew that Jonathan had been killed. And David wanted to know if he had any relatives left alive. And there was one. And it was a relative of Jonathan's. The Bible says that when he was five years old, and the news about Saul, that was Jonathan's father, and the news about Jonathan came from Jezreel, that they had both been killed, that the nurse picked up Jonathan's child, his son, and fled. But as she hurried out to leave, they fell, and he became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. So David called Mephibosheth and said, bring him to me. And they did. They brought Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth did what anyone would do in his situation. He fell prostrate before King David. And King David called his name. He said, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth said, here is your servant. And David said to him, do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. Now you may be thinking, why is that a big deal? You see, but Mephibosheth replies to him in true humility. He says, what is your servant, King David? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth had been lame since he was a kid, since he was a toddler. He couldn't walk. He had nothing to offer society in this time frame. When you look at the context of this, when you look at the world, when this took place, he had nothing to offer. And he says, why would you show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then King David called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. David told Mephibosheth, he told his servant, you and your sons and your servants will take care of the land for him. And you will bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, you shall always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of his sons. He lived in Jerusalem, the Bible says, because he always ate at the king's table, even though he was lame in both feet. You may be thinking, well, why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal because King David figured out the secret of mercy and grace. It wasn't his to give. He knew what God had done in his life, and he offered the same thing to Mephibosheth. This is a time when any other king would kill any possible heir to his throne. That when a king sent out a decree, bring all of the heirs of so-and-so, they didn't bring him to celebrate them like David did. They would bring him to have them killed. Not to restore the family's wealth. Not to invite them to eat at the table like one of their own sons. 
David's given mercy and grace to someone, and, and the rest of the kingdom is probably going, what? Why would he do that? Well, because he was a man after God's own heart. Mephibosheth did nothing to deserve this. And just like Mephibosheth, we come crippled on our face before the King of Kings, bringing nothing to his table, bringing nothing to him except for ourselves. If you're having a hard time offering mercy and grace, I hope you'll think about David and Mephibosheth because the reality is we are all disabled by sin. I don't know what your sin is. I don't know what your particular struggle is, but we are all disabled by sin. We're all dead dogs like Mephibosheth on our own. We, we bring nothing to the king's table, but because of Christ, we are like Mephibosheth. We can eat at the king's table. We can be like one of the king's sons. That's mercy and grace, not because we deserve it, but because God wants to give it to us. And we should be a reflection of the mercy and grace that has been given to us. And that's what David did. It wasn't his to give. It just overflowed from him into Mephibosheth's life. I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now this is Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. And he's already addressed some specific things in his first letter. But in this letter he wants them to understand a few more things. And I want to do something a little bit different as we look into 2 Corinthians. I was reading through this, and I began looking at it and thinking about when you look at the introduction to a letter, it's written very specific. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the introduction, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought, what if, what if this letter... To, Corinthian, to the Corinthian church started off something like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Huntsville, together with all his holy people throughout Madison County. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. What, what if he wrote this specifically to us? And I'm not trying to change up what the Bible says. I'm not, I'm not rewriting Scripture but I want us to look at it that way today. I want you to think about this as if we have received this letter from Paul. And in particular, we're, we're going to look at this letter specifically written to Huntsville Christian Church, and we're going to look at chapter 3 of this letter that has been written to you. Open your mind, and let's see what we can discover that will make offering mercy and grace a little bit easier. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by... This is Paul. He's saying to you, you are his letter of recommendation. It's written on your hearts and it's read by everyone, basically in how you act and how you live. Okay? Follow this with me. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with the ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. If you're reading this in your Bible, underline, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. 
not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And we're going to pause right there for a second. You see, the letter that he's referring to is the letter of the law, the Ten Commandments. He, he makes reference to it. The problem with the law is the law brings punishment. You see, Paul is reminding them that in law, there's punishment. There's no room for mercy and grace. When you measure your life against the law, there's no mercy and grace. Is guilty or not guilty? When you've broken the law, what happens? You're punished. If you break the speed limit and you get a ticket, you pay the fine. If you steal, you go to jail. It, there's punishment with law. But because of Christ's death, His burial, and His resurrection, we have been made competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter or the law, but of the Spirit. You see, the first thing you have to know is this. As long as you remember you are a minister of this new covenant, it's on you to be a reflection of mercy and grace, no matter what's been done to you, no matter what you think you deserve. No matter how many times you've been wronged, Christian, you are just as much a minister of the new covenant as I am as a preacher of the word. There's no difference in us in this statement right here. We are elevated to the Lord's table like Mephibosheth. You, <clears throat> you're part of this new covenant. You are a minister of the new covenant. It's not on us to judge our world. It's not on you to tell people that they're going to go to hell or that they're sinning. It is on us to, to be accountable in sin with people. Okay? Let me explain it that way. But it's not on us to judge people. It's not on us to condemn people. It is on us to be a minister of the new covenant. The new covenant is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The new covenant that's being talked about has a greater glory than law. The new covenant that Paul is sharing with this church has a greater glory than the Ten Commandments. Why is that important? Because there are a lot of Jewish Christians in the Corinthian church, and just like we do today, they would often look back to the past and remember it better than what it really was, and they would say, but, but the law says this. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says this. It says grace and mercy. It says go and sin no more. It says repent. It says change your way. You see, the new covenant is being talked about this way. And we're going to continue to look at it, picking up in verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was the law, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Paul's saying, hey, you're holding on to history. If that ministry that brought condemnation was glorious to you, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness, that brings freedom? Verse 10, For what was glorious has no glory, now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have, had, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like... Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is, is read. It has not been removed 
because only as Christ, only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Paul is telling them, you've been given this gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with it comes things like mercy and grace. Stop looking back to the law to punish the people who are stumbling around you. Stop looking back to the law because when you look to the law, a veil covers your heart. And when that veil covers your heart, you're no longer reflecting mercy and grace because you're remembering your own past sins and mistakes and judgment is falling on yourself. And verse 16 says, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And verse 17, you can read this with me if you'd like. Actually, I would like to encourage you to. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Do you believe that? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. With unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. Folks, we are being transformed into His image. That means we are beginning to be a better reflection of Him. Or we should be beginning to be a better reflection of Him if we're walking in Him, if we are putting our relationship with Christ first. Verse 17 tells us that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And when your relationship with God is how it should be, you don't have to be a reflection of Him. You don't have to offer mercy and grace because you get to be a reflection of Jesus. You get to offer mercy and grace to others because just like with David and Mephibosheth, it's going to come up out of you and it's going to flow and it's going to be a natural thing to offer mercy and grace to people who need it because it doesn't matter what they've done. Their sin is not against you, Christian. Don't take it personal. It, it's not yours. Their sin is against God. God doesn't need us to judge the world. He needs us to be a reflection of His Son to the world. Here's the reality about mercy and grace and why it's so hard to offer it. Is there a baseball field up there somewhere? There it is. Go ahead. You know you like baseball. The reality about mercy and grace and why it's so hard is because we all want it. And the problem with the things we want is it's hard to give to other people when we're too busy wanting it ourselves. Whether it's a boat or a car or your offering on Sunday hard to give it when we want it for ourselves and it's the same thing with mercy and grace you see all all the people protesting in our world they want mercy and grace the people being attacked in our world want mercy and grace the people breaking the law want mercy and grace when they get caught i i watch another or it's not another i watch the first 48 hours and it's a it's a show where homicide detectives reenact a murder and they they talk about the first 48 hours are the most important in catching the person who committed the crime and uh, what what makes this point very proper is that they were interviewing one of these two men who actually killed the truck driver and they finally got him to crack and he says you know we just went to rob him we didn't mean to kill him (laughs) so it was okay to go rob the man We didn't mean to kill him. That was an accident. But we had all intention of going and robbing him and beating him up and taking his stuff. And and but when they got caught for murder, 
they wanted mercy and grace for the murder count, they fessed up very easily to, yes, we went to rob him, but the murder was accident, so we shouldn't get a premeditated murder charge. We should get a lesser charge. We wanted, they wanted mercy and grace on murder, even though they went out intent on robbing this man and the gun accidentally went off. You see, everybody wants mercy and grace, and being a reflection of God's mercy and grace, it's kind of like playing baseball. You're like, what? He's lost his mind again. So what happens in baseball? You get up to bat. If you're really good, you kind of point it out. They pitch it. You hit it. You run, run, run. Get to first base if you're lucky. I don't run so much these days. But if I got to first base, I would have what they call a pinch runner. So I could go get some oxygen. (laughs) He's a much smaller version of me. Faster. You see, so he's on first base. And my runner, when we were kids, they were ghost runners because only like four of us playing. <laughs> my runner would be on first base. And the coach over on third base would give him the signal. That was a signal to steal second. In case you didn't know, if you weren't on my team, you wouldn't know that. But the only way you're going to go from first base and steal second, that only happens one way. You step off of first base without hesitation and you run as fast as you can. Never looking back to first base, you run as fast as you can to second base. And since my runner is much faster than me, he will get there safe. Maybe even an overthrow and he'll get to third because he's really fast. The point is this. You can't steal second base in baseball unless you're willing to let go of first base. You can't. You cannot be a reflection of God's mercy and grace if you aren't willing to leave some of the negative stuff in your life behind. Because your covered sins, what you think are your secret things, will be the veil over your heart that prevents you from offering mercy and grace to the people that need it the most in your life and in our world. You think I'm wrong, check where your relationship with Jesus is. See, I still stand by that statement. If you're still struggling with secret sins, if you're struggling with things that nobody knows about, then you're not focusing on your relationship with Jesus Christ. You're not doing everything you can to be a reflection of Him. And you're not, logically and spiritually speaking, going to be able to extend mercy and grace to other people. Because your sin is put a veil over your heart. It's blinded you. The reality is, we are the only thing that keeps us from being a reflection of God's mercy and grace. Not what's done to us, not what happens around us, not anything else. As an individual Christian, you are the only thing that is keeping you from being a reflection of God's mercy and grace. I want to look at 1 John 4. Starting with verse 7, I think this is a good example of what we need to do in our personal lives to begin extending mercy and grace to everyone that we come in contact with. The Bible tells us this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. 
Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world. We are like Jesus. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. See, fear is one of those things that keeps us from offering grace and mercy. Well, if I offer them grace and mercy, it's like forgiving them, and then they can do it again, and they can do it again, and they can do it again. It's okay, you don't have to be afraid of that, because there's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. What also has to do with punishment? Somebody answer it loudly. Say the law. Thank you. I heard you. Good job. Lorna was on it. Boom. The law also has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. You see, we reflect mercy and grace to others because God first gave mercy and grace to us. Verse 20 and 21 says, Whoever claims... To love God yet hates a brother or sister as a liar. It's because if you hate a brother or sister, that means obviously you're not offering them mercy and grace. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. In case you're wondering, to love someone is to offer mercy and grace. If you're wondering who your brother and your sister are, start by looking around this room. If you're wondering who your brother and sister are, look around your office this week. If you're wondering who your brother and sister are, look around your community. Look around our county. Look around our nation. Your brothers and sisters are hurting people. And they're holding signs and they're protesting. Your brothers and your sisters are are shooting each other. Your brothers and your sisters are, are raping each other. They're fighting each other. They're stealing from each other. That's what our family is doing. That's what our brothers and our sisters are doing. And they don't even realize that they all want the same thing. They all want mercy and grace. They want it given to them. But they don't know how to offer it to others. And how will they know if we don't teach them? And how are we going to teach them if we won't even leave first base? It has to start with us. 
How will they know if we don't teach them? You see, offering someone mercy and grace is not that hard. It's like loving someone. What do you mean it's like loving someone? Love is a choice. I preached on that in February. Love is a choice. It's not, it's not something you fall into. It's not an accident. Same thing. Giving, offering mercy and grace is a choice. And just like we choose to love, we have to choose to be a reflection of God's mercy and grace to the people around us. As we go into our response time this morning, you need to decide who you need to offer mercy and grace to. And see, your response to God's word, I hope, is to seek out those people and offer them mercy and grace. It's not hard to do. We just have to decide that we're going to do it. The best time to decide that you're going to offer mercy and grace is before someone has done something to hurt you or offend you or lash out at you. You decide what you're going to do now so that when that time happens, you're not ruled by emotion. You're using the fruit of the Spirit. You're using self-control. You're using love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. You're using those things to offer grace and mercy to someone. My prayer this week has been that each of us will consider who we need to reflect mercy and grace to. And that as we go through our week, we will act on that. Will you stand and sing our response song with us and respond accordingly?